So my mother, a long time ago, I remember uh, she had gotten this old piece of, this old table, or at least it was pieces of table that was in the, in the barn in the attic where everything was dusty at her parents' place, my grandparents. And we hauled it. We put it in a trailer and hauled it for about three hours to our house. And my mother spent so much time Basically, you know, with the chemicals and the mask, like some of you here, okay. So she, she was using all those chemicals and things and scraping and trying to basically make this table into something again. So there was, you know, the pieces had to be put together and the table turned out beautifully. And it came like a centerpiece in our home. We did a lot of puzzles on that table but she restored it to its original beauty and prominence. And as we're reading here in Ephesians, you know, this book, this book is different. It's not like uh, a lot of other Paul's books where he's bringing some correction or he is uh, bringing out a heresy and trying to guide them in it. His intent in this letter is to expand their horizons, to open their understanding and to clarify their purpose as a church. Specifically, in Ephesians 1.18, it says, to the purpose, the hope to which he has called you. So Paul's trying to open their minds, hoping for them to see what he sees and what God has intended for them. God, he says, has set some high goals for the church and that they were directly tied to God's overall purpose, which is what? Verse 10, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. So what God is doing was doing there among the Ephesians, he was doing for that purpose to bring things into Christ. What God is doing in Metro Believers Church is that he's trying to bring us all together to unify things under one head, even Christ. See, God is working in you and to restore the relationship and to renew all things, including us. So understanding who we now are and where things are heading now affects how we live. So if that's the case, that this is where we're going, if this is God we're taking us, how does that affect us now? That's what Paul's addressing in this reading that we have. So again, Paul talked about two main goals for the Ephesian church. It was one, be unified, right? We talked about that in previous messages. It's to be unified. And second, it's to be mature, a maturity. Maturity just doesn't grow, just happen with aging. Do you know any old people who are not mature? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I ain't saying a bit of that. Uh, it takes time, but it also takes teachability. Conveying of wisdom, understanding, all these things, they take time. It's like a it's like a maturing garden. You can't be fast at making a good garden. It takes the time, it has to naturally process the nutrients, the elements, the sunlight, everything that takes that time. So we also talked about in a previous message and to aid in that maturation. God gives gifts. He gives gifts to individuals. And, and remember, the gift is not for you as the individual. It's for others, right? It's not for you to say, hey, look what I'm good at. But it's for others. Be prayerful about what God's gift is for you. Remember, Lance said, 
provide a message on that. So remember, the gift is not for the individual. It's for everyone else. Just like God choosing Israel wasn't because he thought Israel was so darn special. It's because he saw every other nation. He says, I want someone to reach out to them. So he, it was basically the, the elect for the sake of the non-elect, right? He chose them to reach those who were not yet chosen. So why again? Because this unity, this, this project that God has us working, and he wants us to be mature and, and pure, is so that all things in heaven and earth could come under Christ. And how you relate to one another, how you, you handle life is bringing things under Christ. So in this text, he compares, he does a couple of things. He compares and contrasts the Gentiles uh, with the Ephesians. So the Gentiles are those who represent those who are separated from God. They don't know God. They've been affected. They don't know the promises of God. There's no history there. And the Ephesians were those who were the new life. They were believers in Christ. And they were beginning the formation of this new people, this new humanity, a new kind of humanity. So he compares and contrasts. Next, he details the effects of this new life. Okay, like we said, if this is true, if this is where things are going, what does this mean for us now, right? And then lastly, he was talking about how we relate to others in the church is our response to that new life. So Paul first describes, he describes non-believers. Again, those are the ones who, the Gentiles here, those are the ones who didn't know God. They didn't know his promises. And he says, um, he talks about this hardening of heart, which I just want to break down a little bit. And so this is verse 17, we're going to, uh, 17 through 18 again. So I tell you this and insist on the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So the condition of their heart affects how they think. They don't have the capacity to understand the things of God because how things are hard. Think of the heart as soil. If it's no good, if it's hard, nothing is growing, right? The life of God cannot grow. You know, seldom does anybody really come to faith in Christ because they are convinced by sound reasoning. You know, apologetics is great and it's, and it's necessary. Say that apologetics is necessary, but you've seen these like debate scenes maybe on YouTube where they hash it out. You know, here's the agnostic, he's going to take on this, you know, this uh, professor of theology, or whatever. They hash it out, and you're like, who really wins? You know, does anybody really win the argument? He's like, oh wow, he, you know, it's kind of like a football thing that's tied at the end because there's great plays, great things that happen, but really, does anybody come to Christ with that? Occasionally, yes, but not as a whole, and not as a whole because it's not a condition of reason, an issue of reasoning. It's an issue of the heart. People often don't believe because they don't want to. They don't want to be convinced. The hardening of the hearts. So the question is, is all right, did they harden their hearts or did God harden it? So really, it's both, and probably the best story uh, in, 
in the scriptures is Exodus, where God, through Moses, he warns Pharaoh of the coming judgment against him in Egypt. And whenever God warns, whenever God makes a warning in scripture, he's also kind of got his fingers crossed, hoping that you repent, hoping that you make a change. This is coming, it's going to be terrible, your cows are going to die, and all your firstborn, you know, all of this, but he's like, oh, you repent, I hope you make a change. No response, okay, I'll make another warning, and so he, he, oh, he ramps it up, and this is exactly what he did with Pharaoh, but the first time he provides a warning, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. That's how he responded. And so God ramps it up with another warning. And eventually it says that now God hardened his heart. The opportunity closed. And basically, God gave Pharaoh what he really wanted. He wanted a heart that was resolute against God. He wanted a heart that was resolute against his people. Uh, he wanted to hold on to his pride, his anger, his unforgiveness. And God gives him what he wants by hardening his heart. So he pulls back his mercy. And that's the result. You know, it's kind of like you're in a traffic jam. You're like, I've got to get to Aldi's, right? i got to get to Aldi's. And so you see this traffic backing up, and you're just like, I'm going to get to Aldi's. So I'm going to find another way to get there, and it's going to be longer. I'm going to have more stop signs, stop lights, but I'm going to get there. And God, in the same way with Pharaoh, is saying, I'm going to deliver my people, and my name is going to be praised. How we get there is up to you. Pharaoh, I want you to change. Pharaoh, I want you to change. He doesn't, and God says, I'm going to go through the stoplights. I'm going to take the long way, and I'm going to make it happen. So for non-believers, by their refusal to behold God, they are essentially hardening their hearts. And at some point, God may harden, harden theirs ultimately for his glory. But when this happens, we don't really know. It's, been, it's in the Lord's hand. So he continues, Paul's describing these people. Again, he's contrasting. He's contrasting the Gentiles with the Ephesians. So we're still talking about Gentiles and non-believers. Verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So because they can't sense God and God's life, they get very sensual, giving themselves over to things that make them feel alive, right? They're saying, man, that makes me feel alive, right? Mountain biking through the woods is one of those things that makes me feel alive. I haven't done it in years, but when I have, I, I do it now out of wisdom. I don't do it now out of wisdom because it breaks something. But when I would do it afterwards, I'm like, mm. you know, like the, the thorns and the briars and stuff I'd be going through would tear up my legs. They'd be bleeding a little bit. And I was like, yeah, I felt it. And so that is in a form of sensuality, if you will, where if you don't have the life of God, you will seek something to make you feel alive elsewhere. That's what Paul's referring to here. And this happened as soon as the, in the garden. Eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, basically it was Adam and Eve saying, I will decide what is good. And they made the choice apart from God Leaving God out of it. So it says in Scripture originally that we were, we were created with a sensitivity to God and His ways. 
and that Adam and Eve were in relationship with, with them. Remember, remember, it talks about they were naked and without a shame and, and unashamed. Like, okay, I, I can't relate to that. But then afterwards, all of a sudden they became like, I'm naked. There was this change in sensitivities, change of awareness, where they became so self-conscious and aware. And so this, what happened at the garden, where picking the fruit and disobeying God was basically saying, God, you're holding out on me. I don't trust you. I find this good. I don't think you're going to give it to me. I'm going to pursue it myself. And so it becomes this desire and drive of all humanities to be like God. It drives our actions, our thinkings, really even how we form as a people, even as we do uh, in politics. The effect of the fall, having now the knowledge of good and evil, the awareness of self-determination is so powerful, is so powerful that it drives you. It, it's like gravity. It pulls you continually into self-awareness, self-absorption, self-gratification, and it's in direct opposition to God. So an example of politics, if, if you don't mind me. I think of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1989. Uh, there was uh, essentially... This is my take on communism, is without getting into a lot of it. It's basically they were trying they're trying to do some good things. It was the workers were so oppressed in the industrial age and they wanted to elevate them and make things fair and and so they wanted to basically even out the wealth because the the wealthy were so much higher, uh, so much so much more than those who did not. And it was their, their intent, but they wanted to have a kingdom without a king. They wanted the kingdom of God, but to eliminate the king. And they were systematic about it. I could go into some pretty gruesome stories about it. But they, it was something that they were very intent on eliminating. But there was a, there's a writer, Philip Reif, he was a sociologist. About a quarter of a century prior to 1989, he made this prediction that communism would not be able to withstand the cultural revolution coming from the West one that purported to set the individual free to pursue hedonism and individualism. If there is no sacred order, then the original promise of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, you shall be as gods, is the foundational principle of the new culture. And this is the culture we live in. What is he saying? Communism, whatever it was intended to be, it couldn't withstand the greater power that originated from the tree, which is, you will be like God, was the promise, was the lie, right? <laughs> only, only the light of the gospel can deliver you from this lie. And you don't know it until God's light shines. And Lance shared about that last week. I think of this, uh, well, Kristen and I, we had a, a condo prior to our home now, and we had this we had this color that we really liked in our living room and our main, it was like our base color. We had to think we, we painted it all over. It's called Timothy Tan. So it was like this nice beige. It looked great. And we like we built this new house and we moved in. We're like, we so much like that color, we're gonna do it here. And so we painted part of this color, and all of a sudden, Timothy Tan didn't look right. It all of a sudden looked like skin. Like Ed Gein's house. Anybody know Ed Gein's house? 
So it didn't look right. It wasn't until the light, because our house now had all of this light, all of a sudden you could see that color for what it was. And so when you look, it's only in the light of Jesus Christ that you can see our culture for what it is. And that's what Paul's doing. He is, he is comparing. This is the Gentiles. This is you. You, the Ephesians. Jesus is saying, no, you cannot function without God. No, you are not designed to live autonomously. You are designed to be the Father's child. And when you live in love and obedience, and to live in love and obedience to the Father, and he says, I have made the way for you to come home. This is what Jesus, this is light. So let's contrast again with Paul here, some of the common wisdom that you may hear in this world. Uh, I think an example is uh, one like, maybe you've heard something like this. You have to do whatever makes you happy. Have you heard that? Okay. Here's another one. You have to be true to yourself. Or my favorite, or one that irritates me the most, and I can't explain why. You deserve it. Right? You need this new car because you deserve it. Or you need this fill-in-the-blank because you deserve it. These statements of counterfeit wisdom deceive us that, one, you alone are the authority and decision-maker in your life, and that we ultimately determine our own destiny. Also, they deceive us that you, the individual, are God, and you must be true in worship of yourself. Lastly, this is what I think has kind of crept into the church, possibly, is this cultural mindset. Is that, okay, if there is a God, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I even received him in my heart. But then God's purpose really is to make my life better. And he no longer rules over me, but serves as my great therapist. Our great therapist. However, Paul, verse 20, he says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. Well, what I was describing, that thinking, that mindset, living for yourself, you making your own decisions, autonomous of God, whether it's an entire nation or whether it's you as an individual, that is not the way of life you learned. Verse 21, when you heard about Christ and were taught him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, note you were taught in him. You were taught about Jesus. He says you were taught in him. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Those desires within us that are wicked are corrupting us. But to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self, take off the old, put on the new, put on the new self, Created to be, catch this, like God in the true righteousness and holiness. That desire that people have to be like God, they're trying to do without God. They're trying to do it without a deliverer. Jesus, the Savior. Jesus, the example. Jesus, our Redeemer. We live in Christ, and so we become like God. We are in process for this. But everything that Adam and Eve desired, Jesus Christ has provided. Everything that this world is wanting, he has. 
So we are no longer a slave to this culturally way, this way of thinking, this worldly way of thought. And this has only happened by grace. This is God's grace. It's not about you white-knuckling your own righteousness. Yeah, I can, I can live well. I can do right. Or putting on a garment of religion to cover and clean yourself up. This isn't our doing. You can't, you can't make yourself good enough. This is a hands-off approach. Jesus, take the wheel, right? God has cleansed you. God has made you perfect. God has made you righteous. And it's because of Christ. I love this quote from Tim Keller. Listen closely. The gospel is dynamic for all heart change, life change, and social change. Change won't happen through trying harder, but only through encountering with the radical grace of God. We do not get saved by believing in the gospel and then grow by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. Believing in the gospel is not only the way to meet God, but it's also the way to grow in him. This is all about God's grace. Don't get on yourself about not mustering up because you, you won't. It's this grace. The grace is by grace that we work out this salvation with fear and trembling. This is the way. Oh, you Mandalorian fans, you want to notice that? Okay, so if this is the case, if God has been gracious to do this for us, how do we respond? So Paul gets pragmatic here. This is verse 25. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. So he says, being truthful and genuine with one another is the way. So he's not talking about, I should say, you. His main focus here is about you being together as the body of Christ. You are not, you can't be just an attendee and say, I, this is my church. Church means you are engaged with people, that you're going through difficult times and sharing them with them, and you're also supporting and helping them with their burdens. It means that you're submitting to, to the gifts of God and people around you. It means that you... Uh, you, you, you work closely together. That means there's going to be friction sometimes, but you work out that friction. And Paul talks about that. You see, being truthful takes an effort. And you know what a poser is, right? A poser is somebody who's trying to appear they're different than, than what they really are. They're trying to kind of deceive or maybe just trying to hide something. Social media is just a great place for that, Right? And so the more, the more isolated and detached that you are, whether it's by being a poser or just not being a part of a, of a church, the more isolated and detached you are, the more you will pose yourself and you'll have fewer people to be truthful with. And that's a lonely and dangerous place to be. There's this phenomenon they call atomization of society. Uh, sociologists talk about it. Basically, uh, I'm trying to simplify it. It's like, okay, Whatever, back 200 years ago, before the atomic theory, we thought of everything as just matter as it is. You know, that, well, that's, that's a floor, and those are, those are lights, and that's a rock. And, but after the, the atom theory, they really developed, hey, matter has, there's basically smaller parts of matter. 
And it, and it divided it to such an extent that it became more like understandable. You had the, the nucleus and the proton, neutron, electron, all of this. And so it wasn't just a rock anymore. It was an element that had these properties. And, and they say that something similar is happening to society. Where basically, things are getting broken down so much. People are so grouped and departmentalized that they are separated. Society has changed the individual. And formerly, what we were, you know, part of something larger and cohesive has now become separated. Since 1970, the number of people around the world who live alone has doubled. Doubled. Community has diminished. How are you connected? How are you a part of, when I say connected, I mean, it's so technologically in our mind, they think connection means I'm connected to Wi-Fi and I'm connected to my friends on social media. But how are you close to people? Many of you or people near you have so few experiences of true community. Loneliness is now being seriously studied and monitored. UCLA has a, a loneliness scale that they that they monitor and use. And, uh, I think Cigna, the insurance company, that used this scale and did a study. On a scale of 0 to 80, 0 is not lonely at all, and 80 is very lonely. They found a loneliness score, you know, the threshold of 43 was considered lonely. And in Americans, or in, the, in the Americans here, it is up 7% from 54%, which is lonely, to 21% in a period of one year. And that was 2018 to 2019. And especially the highest numbers, there was some that were elderly, but it was mostly millennials and even more so Generation Z. Our youngest generation reported the highest level of loneliness. Not enough social support, too few meaningful social interactions, poor physical and mental health, not enough balance in our lives. Welcome to church, come to church, community. God's called you to be a part of a community of people who love and care for you, and people for you to love and care for. So this means, again, be truthful. How am I truthful and honest? And am I letting people come close? Am I approaching others for God to use me, to bring healing, encouragement, bring them a meal, listen to their stories, all the simple things we can do? Again, Paul starts with truth and identity, stating you are a member of body, therefore be truthful, be honest. This is part of the gospel. We'll continue here. He says further, actually we won't have time to go through all of it, but in the verses 26 through 32, he kind of goes through a litany of different behaviors or different acts. And one of them I'll call out is he says in verse 26, it's, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Pragmatically here, Paul's is saying, hey, you're going to have times you're going to be ticked off, right? And it's how you handle that is godliness. Paul acknowledges there's going to be times, but it's proper for you to, it's not proper for you to remain angry or even to remain in a place of hurt. Doing so gives the devil leverage to manipulate you and take you out of the game. Anger and bitterness not dealt with puts you on the bench. You're out. And he loves for you to be there. Verse 28, he continues, says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work 
doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. What's the saying? Basically, we are, we are empowered to work not just for our own gain and for ourselves, but for others. Greed is essentially a symptom of not feeling good enough or not believing you're good enough. Or laziness, which some call motivational constipation, like that one. It keeps us from being part of a community. He continues in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Then may benefit those who listen. What is coming out of your mouth? Is it criticism? Is it encouragement? If you need to, ask someone around you to let you know, say, what do you hear from me? What comes out of my mouth? You may have a, it may be an eye opener. So he continues, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. But rather, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So Paul is really painting the picture of the practical look of what a renewed people is to look like. Friends, that is us. That is you. God is planning and wanting us to be a renewed people. Rather than being false with each other or being like a poser, he wants us to be truthful, honest. Rather than remaining in anger or hurt, he wants us to be forgiven. Because just, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Rather than for us taking for ourselves in greed or we're just lazy, we proactively think, how can, I, how can I contribute? How can I give? And this is more than the events of a Sunday service, okay? We're thinking more than that. How can I give and contribute? How can I be a part? Rather than being critical, fault-finding, instead lifting others up, we take inventory of our words. Rather than being dismissive and cold, the renewed people are compassionate and take action. So what does this mean for us? You know, though Paul has instructed them in the lofty goals that God has for the church in the direct instruction, this same church, as Matt pointed out, a couple of decades later, even though he had given this instruction, he had told them, um, you had forsaken your first love. He said you did some things good. You discerned evil well. You could really call out things in the news and say, oh, that's not right. I don't stand for that. Or the teaching. He pulls out the, uh, the Nicolaitans. That Pharisee is false. They identified. They were good at acknowledging what wasn't right and what wasn't good. They knew their theology. They were on top of their game that way. But he said you lost your first love. Repent. And so... Loving Jesus, it's not, it's, it's not first about moral living. It's not even about having ironclad doctrine or excellent conduct. It's first about loving Jesus. He is the first thing. Responding to his kindness, and gratitude, and submission is our first response. 
We love him because he first loved us. We ask the worship team to come up here as we respond. Back to that old table my mother had put together. She had peeled all that stuff off and worked it off and it stank up the house. And, uh, but underneath was this beautiful cherry wood. And like I said, it took, it took a lot of effort. God is doing a work on us. He's doing a work in us. And it will take a long time. So you see, the Father is a wedding planner. And he is planning the ultimate wedding for his son. He's working things in preparation for the coming together of heaven and earth and for this great wedding. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I like to think of it as like a river. The river is, uh, you know, you, you can dam the river or you can try to stop it. That potential is still there. It's still going to move. And in your life, there may be like eddies or little backwaters or what have you, but if you stay in the river, you'll eventually get to where it's going, your mouth in the sea. God's the gospel, there's a gospel story, and it's moving forward. And we need to stay together in that river. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Lord, we thank you so much for the word of God in Ephesians. Thank you for prompting Paul to write this, passing it on to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that's teaching us. Lord, you want us to respond to this new life and embrace the change. You know we couldn't do it alone. We have to do it together. And it gets messy. It gets messy. But the final product is beautiful. Lord, help us to trust you that you are working in us just as you promised. Help us not to believe the lie of this culture that's telling us that we need to be gods. But let's let you do your work in us to be like God just as you originally intended us to be. And that is your glorified word and glorified. Thank you for what you're doing in us. I want to challenge any one of you here if you feel like Lord, you've lost that first love where you feel like you've gotten slick about your faith. You've got it down. You're pretty good at it. I'm talking to you. Or you feel like, hey, I have not been a part of the body or I don't feel like I am worthy of it. I can't be a part because A, B, C. Praying for you. If you feel you need to respond to this in any way, just raise your hand with me. Lord, I lift up my brothers and sisters for reaching out to you. Lord, to be, to be a part of what you're doing. Thank you for the grace that is in to us through Jesus. Jesus, thank you. You believe in us. Even though we did that thing again, we feel like stupid idiots, or have this hurt that doesn't seem to go away, you smile and embrace us. Lord, I pray that we as a church would thrive and grow, 
in the craft of love, loving each other, loving you, loving our neighbor. Help us to be all about the things of God and not be taken and distracted, tricked by the world. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who are willing to humble themselves and say, yes, I'm in need of God's grace. If there's anybody who also is needing any prayer uh, about knowing the Lord or coming to the Lord or repenting of something, please come to talk with me, uh, Matt or Lance, Lisa, or we're here. I'd love to pray with you. Let's respond to what the Lord has spoken to us about.